This is Unfilter, episode 348 for February 10th, 2021. As I've been telling you forever, there are a lot of people in this country who are afraid of what is happening. They're afraid of the diversity in, in this country. But they'll vote for him anyway. They're going to, but maybe. But he has, he was the most vocal in all of the things that they're afraid of. And so they, found, they see themselves in him with that particular part. So they prioritize that part over the discrimination of other people, over all of the crazy rhetoric that he did. That's what they, that's what they prioritize. And so they want to continue with that America and, and in an America where you can be a white supremacist, where you can wear a, a, a Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt, where you can do but run who, roughshod over like the that, Constitution. Who would they ever vote because, for except someone on that side of the aisle who's no, pitching them that virulence? No, 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 they're not because. Those, because they, they look at those people as rhinos. And because this was the person who stood up for them the most in that horrible way, the worst part yeah, of their I get personality. Yeah, he was the worst being, of the worst. That's I'm with it. you. Friends and welcome into the People's History Podcast. This is a weird one for me. I have been watching a trial all day long, and it feels like the energy from my brain was being sucked into the C-SPAN stream to sustain the unbelievable crap show that I was watching. There's a lot to get to, and you're going to be told a lot of things about the trial today. And it's going to be spun in a particular way, depending on where you hear it from. So I thought what we could do is go through some of the most impactful moments in as much of the full context as is reasonably possible to really give you an idea of where impeachment round two for Donald Trump is going. I I thought I would miss out on the impeachment fund since Unfilter was off the air during the first trial, but (laughs) it turns out I still get to take a crack at it. And what it really boiled down to for me was just watching a lot of this live stream and getting getting a sense of what the argument really is. And I think I've got a pretty good conception of that, and I see where things are going, and we'll discuss what the Trump team is probably going to have to do to right this ship. And then additionally, there's some COVID-related topics that I definitely want to get into. There's a high note I want to end on. And then up on our peer tube over at unfilter.tube, there is an overtime that will be accompanying this episode as well as the full live stream of this show. There's lots of video clips that I'm trying to integrate now. So you might consider hitting the pause button on the MP3 and going over to unfilter.tube and watching the rest of the show there. But if audio works for you, no worries, my friend, because I get you. I'm I'm on your side there. But there is so much to digest with all this impeachment stuff. I actually think video could be a little beneficial so you can see the body language and whatnot. But let's reset just so you know where we're at. Let's start with kind of a rundown from the BBC, of all places, of the state of the impeachment. Washington Democrats made up their minds to impeach President Trump before he was even inaugurated. Donald Trump is a living, breathing, impeachable offense. Donald Trump is facing an impeachment trial again. No president has ever been impeached twice, and no president has ever gone on trial after leaving office. It's fair to say we're in pretty uncharted territory. So what's the case against him? Donald Trump is accused of inciting violence against the government. Specifically this, the storming of Congress by thousands of his supporters. 
But his accusers say you have to go back a couple of months to last November's presidential election. We know there was massive fraud. That was a rigged election. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. Trump lost, but refused to admit it. Not only that, but when the state of Georgia was getting ready to hold a second round of voting to settle two very close Senate races, Mr. Trump is accused of trying to intervene illegally. I only need 11,000 votes. Fellas, I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. It all came to a head on January the 6th, when Congress was due to confirm the results of the presidential election. In a long, bitter speech, Mr. Trump railed against the entire election process. We fight like hell, and if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Within minutes of him finishing, some of his supporters were breaking into the Capitol building. But did the president actually incite violence? America's First Amendment, which protects freedom of speech, gives Mr. Trump lots of leeway to say pretty much whatever he wants, short of ordering his supporters to storm the Capitol, which he did not do. We're going to come back to this clip. It is brought up again, but I want you to pay attention because this is this is on the record. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. It'll be up to the Senate's 100 members to decide if Mr. Trump is guilty or not. And the Democrats will need at least 17 Republicans to join them to get a conviction. It's a really tall order. Most Republicans think the trial shouldn't even be happening. This proceeding we are about to enter is unconstitutional. But what if it does go against him? Well, then Donald Trump will be the first president to be impeached and convicted. He'd almost certainly be barred from ever running for public office again. And he could lose his presidential pension and perks. But what if he wins? The Democrats could still try and find some other way to punish the former president, but to survive impeachment twice in a year would, in the eyes of Mr. Trump's loyal base, represent another victory against an establishment that's just out to get him. A useful platform, perhaps, on which to launch another presidential bid. Yeah, I, I, if there was some, some snowball's chance that he wins this thing, He's set. <laughs> He's set for 2024. He definitely has a platform. And I think Tuesday was really all about figuring out if this thing was going to go forward. It's, it's not necessarily an easy answer because Trump, while impeached as a president, is no longer a sitting president. And depending on how you read the language in the Constitution, you have to be sitting. But there was at least some debate to figure it out. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has laid out the framework for the impeachment trial. He says Republican Leader Mitch McConnell, House Democratic impeachment managers, and lawyers for Trump all agree on the terms. All parties have agreed to a structure that will ensure a fair and honest Senate impeachment trial of the former president. Each side will have ample time to make their arguments. But first up on Tuesday is a debate to see if the trial will go ahead. According to lawmakers, this means four hours to discuss whether the case should be dismissed. 
Both sides have given reasons why the impeachment of a past president is or isn't constitutional. On Monday, Trump lawyers filed a written argument calling the trial political theater. Trump's longtime lawyer, Jay Sekulow, leads the group who says the impeachment is not constitutional. They argue that a plain text reading of the Constitution would only allow sitting presidents to be impeached. But Democrats disagree, saying they want the trial to serve as a referendum against Trump while ensuring he cannot hold office again. If the trial is not dismissed, each side will get up to 16 hours to present their cases starting at noon on Wednesday. If managers decide they want witnesses, there will be a vote on that, which is the option they requested in regard to witnesses. It's not clear if there will be any witnesses called. McConnell says the deal preserves due process. I'm pleased that Leader Schumer and I were able to reach an agreement on a fair process and estimated timeline for the upcoming Senate trial. Senators can expect a total of four hours to question both sides. Then, according to Schumer, the impeachment managers and Trump's defense will share up to four hours to respond. It will give senators as jurors ample time to review the case and the arguments that each side will present. So this is the format. This is the stage in which today played. Today was the Democrats, and they're still going as I record, so it's actually a little strange, 16 hours of laying out a case because the Senate did indeed vote that Trump is subject to the jurisdiction of the court of impeachment for acts committed while president. On this vote, the A's are 56, the nays are 44, and pursuant to SRS 47, the Senate having voted in the affirmative on the foregoing question, the Senate shall proceed with the trial as provided under the provisions of that resolution. Mr. Pre- so that is, <laughs> you can hear the energy in the room. Uh, that is them voting to proceed. That they've, they, they cleared the constitutional hurdle as it was. And Trump's defense, which I'll play a little bit in the overtime, didn't really seem to impress people. Their defense to even their their I guess their defense seemed to even kind of put some off, including Donald Trump himself. But uh, there was a quick interview with uh, Bill Cassidy. He was in the hallway. He's one of the jurors that is going to be deciding on this, and he was not impressed. I said I'd be an impartial juror. Anyone listening to those arguments, the House managers were focused. They were organized. They relied upon both precedent, the Constitution, and legal scholars. They made a compelling argument. President Trump's team were disorganized. They did everything they could but to talk about the question at hand. And when they talked about it, they kind of glided over it, almost as if they were embarrassed of their arguments. Now, if I'm an impartial juror, and one side's doing a great job, and the other side's doing a terrible job on the issue at hand, as an impartial juror, I'm going to vote for the side that did the good job. I don't know if he knows what impartial means, um, but I woke up this morning, got down to the studio, started getting the show ready, and basically pulled up the streams and started catching the opening arguments. Did you watch the first day of former tre- uh, President Trump's impeachment uh, yesterday? It was incredibly emotional. Eh, not really ups and downs. We're going to get into that just in case you missed it. The emotional part that she's referring to is a 14-minute video that was played. Uh, That was just a preview of what was going to be coming today. Today had 10 times more, but I do have that video, the montage that the Democrats played that was the emotional part. I have that up on our PeerTube as a standalone video. 
and it will be in the show notes as well. But we're also going to get you prepped for the hours to come. We are just hours away from the opening arguments for the second day of this historic impeachment trial of the former president. This comes after a divided Senate voted yesterday. That- you can see they're really trying to get some excitement going for this thing. They're really trying to milk this for all that it's worth. And their analysis is pretty weak. About how yesterday played out. Wow, Anne-Marie, it really was compelling. That video that House impeachment managers played, 13 minutes, it was so compelling, at times heart-wrenching. And if you think about, we're watching this video, and we're watching this, all of these emotions go on. Uh, The violence, five people dying that day. Well, the emotional note is hit 10 times harder today. And as MSNBC made it clear, in a lot of ways, this isn't just about facts. This is about the feels. The other point I wanted to echo from what Joe has been saying in in this discussion and earlier in the program is this is a time for exactly the the moral clarity that I think Joe and others are offering. I hope that Americans really take this in. A trial is a learning process. It is about evidence. It is about more than politics, even in a political institution like a legislative body. Uh, And so while law starts with rules, justice goes to the ethics of the society we want. Um, And so... To use a senatorial phrase, I would associate myself with what uh, Joe and others were saying. This is a time for moral clarity in America. If not now, when? Uh, Let's look at what was done to the Capitol, done to democracy, done to those officers, the killing, the rioting, the insurrection, and figure out what, if anything, America wants to do about it. And if the Senate uh, doesn't step up to its moment, then uh, as in other times in the last four years, Americans will have to look at whether they want to do anything uh, about any potential dereliction. You know what's great about that there is he uh, he fails to realize that that's exactly what the protesters thought they were doing. They thought they were stepping up because of dereliction of duty. But he touches on something there. It's about – he says it the wrong way because he doesn't fully understand what's going on. But if you've been listening to this show, I bet you've gotten the sense – you've probably experienced this yourself. It's It's like since Trump was elected – Reality split in two. No, 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 no. Stick with me. No, stick with me. No, 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 no. Hey. I know it sounds silly, but it's almost like there has been two sets of facts playing out. There's been people who have commented on this, like the Dilbert guy. He calls them movies playing out. But it's like there has been people have been presented with two sets of information and they take it two different ways. And it seems like it's been that way since the 2016 election. The world has watched every event around Trump as if two different, uh, you know, let's say movies, to use the Dilbert guys' parlance. Two different movies are playing out. They're seeing different realities. But now, reality A and reality B, if you will, are being put on trial here. That's the meta story here. And the goal, at least the hope is by one side, is that only one narrative will survive. This impeachment trial is about how you perceived things during the Trump era and what he said and did. And put it another way, it's about America trying to find her truth. That's what the lead impeachment manager Raskin believes. Some people think this trial is a contest of lawyers or even worse, a competition between political parties. It's neither. It's a moment of truth for America. My late father, Marcus Raskin, once wrote, 
Democracy needs a ground to stand upon, and that ground is the truth. America needs the truth about ex-President Trump's role in inside... America can't really have two realities. A democracy doesn't function well when there's two sets of perceived facts. The truth. America needs the truth about ex-President Trump's role in inciting the insurrection on January 6th because it threatened our government and it disrupted, it easily could have destroyed the peaceful transfer of power in the United States for the first time in 233 years. Make no mistake about it, this is how official history is written. It's these actions that will codify the official, the official story. It was suggested yesterday by President Trump's counsel that this is really like a, a very bad accident or a natural disaster where lots of people get injured or killed and society is just out looking for someone to blame. And uh, that's a natural and normal human reaction according to President's counsel, but he says it's totally unfair in this case. President Trump, according to Mr. Castor, is essentially an innocent bystander who got swept up in this catastrophe but did nothing wrong. In this assertion, Mr. Castor unerringly echoes his client, ex-President Trump, who declared after the insurrection that the, his conduct in the affair was totally appropriate. It's an interesting statement, though. I think what this trial does is it says the problem has been Donald Trump. It has been the way Donald Trump has misused information, spread fake news, and misled the protesters, given false hope to people. I would argue that it is the total collapse and failure of any of societal systems that are supposed to provide us any kind of what I would consider first world government care. Our, our infrastructure, our roads are in total disrepair. We have no medical. I sit here, a father with three kids with no medical insurance. My kids have medical insurance. I do not. I have to take that risk to start a small business. And I'm not complaining. That's the risk I've chosen to take to have a small business. But it really shouldn't be the risk you have to take. Imagine the barrier of entry for new businesses with something like that. That's so broken. And then there's so many examples when it comes to war and expense and waste. But let's just look recently at what the Wall Street Bets community exposed and how integrated all of that was. There is a system in place that has wrecked these people's lives. You know, some of us, like the, my, first, my first big memory uh, when it comes to something political was the Iraq War. 9-11, of course. I remember how incompetent Bush Jr. seemed and how slimy Bush Sr. seemed. My next big political memory is the U.S. invading the wrong nation over 9-11. And the Patriot Act and all of the horrible, horrible homeland security rules about travel and everything that was so bad after 9-11. It was, I mean, we complain now about the TSA, but it was so much worse after 9-11. And I watched that. And of course, there was the dot-com bust right as I got into the workforce that screwed over my career propositions for a while. And then there was the 2008 financial collapse, as well as, uh, of course, the recession that is happening now. <clears throat> so there's been a lot of things that have screwed people up. And some of it is in strife and some of it, you know, you deal with and you, you make the best. But 
it's not the same opportunity that my parents and their parents were afforded. It's a, it's a different country to grow up in uh, and raise children in now. And uh, I'm struck by some research that I think it was the Washington Post published, and I'll have a link have a, and a couple of supporting links in the show notes for you guys. But it's pretty bad. Nearly 60% of the people that are facing charges related to the Capitol riot showed signs of prior money troubles, including bankruptcy, notices of evictions or foreclosures, bad debts, unpaid taxes. Over the past two decades, according to this analysis, 125 defendants were in there with enough sufficient information they could look at their financial background. Their bankruptcy rate was 18% in the group. That's nearly twice as high as the average in the American public. Jenna Ryan, you may have heard that story. She's a Texas real estate agent. Kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of was, uh, kind of got around because she was the one that flew to the riots in a private jet. You remember that one? <laughs> like, what? What is going on with her? She was like dressed up for like a tailgate. <laughs> That's this gal. Uh, she's fifty, Ryan, and she's accused of going into the Capitol, like in past the doors and whatnot, uh, shouting "Fight for freedom! Fight for freedom!" Uh, and in a way, you know, people are like, what is the successful lady doing down there? You know, she's got it all. She's a Texas real estate agent. She's got a private jet. She's, she's dressed to the hills. Well, the reality is, Ryan has struggled for years. She was, while she was there in D.C., I mean, now, she's still paying off a $37,000 lien for unpaid federal taxes. She nearly lost her home to foreclosure before that. She had to file for bankruptcy in 2012 and faced another IRS tax lien in 2010. I've had, I've had my ass handed to me by the IRS twice in my life. I mean, like, change your life plans, kind of hand your ass. 60% of the people that are facing charges that they could look into the background of, and that's just the ones I could get in the background of, have something like this. That's not a coincidence. Donald Trump didn't cause that. The system caused that. Now, the question is, is what Donald Trump did, the participation that he did have in these events, is that an issue? And the Democrats aren't stupid. They realize they've got to make that case. They realize they've got to show that it's a pattern of intent. And so your good buddy, Eric Swollenwell, the one that was caught with the Chinese spy, addressed the Senate to argue that there is indeed a pattern of intent that can be sussed out here. Mr. President, distinguished senators, my name is Eric Swalwell and I represent California's 15th Congressional District. Manager Castro just told you about Donald Trump's lies and acts before the election. But, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, that wasn't the end of his efforts. That wasn't the beginning of the end. But perhaps it was the end of the beginning. He's being very poetic there, isn't he? But he really tries to make the case that it's not what Donald Trump necessarily said up on the stage right before the riots. They're trying to make the case that it's everything he said right up until the election and after the election. And to make them angry, he was willing to say anything. On November 15, he states, I concede nothing. We have a long way to go. Rigged election. Doesn't say why the election is rigged. 
November 17, in a Twitter statement, dead people voted. That's it. No evidence. Just dead people voted. November 28, Twitter statement. We have found many illegal votes. Stay tuned. This just wasn't true. He never found illegal votes. He didn't even try to pretend that he had evidence for that. And stay tuned, well, that was all about inciting his base, not about bringing legitimate claims. It was about dramatizing the election to anger his supporters. December 5, you see here, he goes after the governors of Arizona and Georgia, governors from his own party, claiming that they weren't with him. You see, senators, he is casting this in combat terms, that either you were with him, making sure that he won the election, or you're fighting against him. These are just a few of the hundreds of Twitter statements that President Trump sent. And it wasn't just Twitter statements. As you'll see, he was dialing into meetings, holding rallies, appearing on television, continuing to spread the big lie that his election victory was stolen. People that were dead were signing up for ballots. Not only were they coming in and putting in a ballot, but dead people were requesting ballots. And they were dead for years. And they were requesting ballots. Dead people voting all over the place? The alleged Biden margin of victory in several states is entirely accounted for by extraordinarily large midnight vote dumps. You saw them with going up to the sky. Massive midnight vote dumps. Dead people voting all over the place. He said there were votes going up to the sky. This was never about pursuing legitimate claims. He was saying anything he could to trigger and anger his base so that they would fight like hell to overturn a legitimate election. And it worked. Just as Manager Castro showed you, President Trump's supporters were taking up arms to stop the count. His message to fight like, steel, fight like hell was having real consequences. In Michigan, you'll recall that President Trump was attacking that state and its officials. He continued these attacks even after Michigan certified its votes. Take a look at Michigan. Take a look at what they did with respect to counties. And then you get to Detroit, and it's like more votes than people? Dead people voting all over the place? You know, I won almost every county in Michigan, almost every district. We should have won that state very easily. We have a similar type of governor, I think, but I'll let you know that in about a week. He's literally telling them that there were more votes in Detroit than people. About 260,000 people voted in Detroit. There are roughly 500,000 registered voters in Detroit. There are approximately 670,000 people living in the city. So again, not true. But he needed to make these outlandish claims to truly make his supporters believe that their victory was stolen from them. And it was working. 
A few days after these clips, on December 5, his supporters surrounded the Michigan Secretary of State's home. Secretary of State's house and uh, the steel. Stop 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 the steel. You're a threat to democracy. You're a threat to free and honest elections. Lots of video, lots of lots of getcha kind of kind of try to get the to appeal to your emotional side in this. But they are trying to demonstrate a, a a series of dots that they think that connects. And so Swanwell tries to bring it home saying that he feels the intent was clear because he's got a legal background. Before Congress, I prosecuted violent crimes in California as an Alameda County Deputy District Attorney. And when you investigate and prosecute violent crimes, you have to distinguish. Was this a heat of passion crime? Or was it something more deliberate, planned, premeditated? The evidence here on this count is overwhelming. President Trump's conduct leading up to January 6th was deliberate, planned, and premeditated. This was not one speech, not one tweet. It was dozens in rapid succession with the specific details. He was acting as part of the host committee. In fact, when he had assembled his inflamed mob in D.C., he warned us that he knew what was coming. This was President Trump's statement the night before the attack. I should say this was one of his dozens of statements on Twitter in the hours leading up to the attack. He says, I hope the Democrats, and even more importantly, the weak and ineffective rhino section of the Republican Party, Republicans in name only is what rhino stands for, are looking at thousands of people, are looking at the thousands of people pointing to D.C. They won't stand for a landslide, they won't stand for a landslide election victory to be stolen. Now, uh, what I think is interesting about that tweet isn't, I don't really read it so much as a threat, but what it does indicate to me is Trump was very aware the night before of how volatile the situation is. I mean, he says it (laughs) right there in the tweet. Uh, but it's 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 really kind of just part of our overall narrative. Not each one particular thing is a case because this isn't a legal trial of the standards that we think of when you think of somebody going to court. This is a political trial. It's a little bit. Well, it's a lot different. And so it's really about the votes. It's about convincing people to vote. And what the Democrats are really doing today in like in a masterpiece way. I have to say, I have never seen them execute on anything in my life this well. But what they're doing today is this extremely well-orchestrated handoff, where each Congress critter hands off to the next, and they build on the previous case. It's 16 hours now of them building on each other's cases. They come in, they make a, they make a point. The, each guy st- or gal stays focused on their thing and builds to the next. And so Swawil, uh he stepped out, and Ted Lou picks right off. And I uh, picked right up what Swalwell was laying down, and he details that Trump – he details that spat between Trump and Barr a little bit, which he thinks kind of underscores Swalwell's pattern of behavior that he was establishing. 
In addition to going after senators and members of Congress, President Trump also pressured our Justice Department. Oh, I want to stop here for a second. Um, this is an interesting thing that happened, and so it's worth pointing out because I want you to have a picture of it in your mind. They had a lot of graphics and sort of infographs in some way that were supporting their points. Lots of media, lots of videos will become uh, even more evident. But even just sort of infographics to show you where they were at in building their case. That's how together they had their S. In addition to going after senators and members of Congress, President Trump also pressured our Justice Department to investigate the false claims that the election was stolen. At the President's direction, Attorney General William Barr, a loyal member of the President's Cabinet, authorized federal prosecutors to pursue substantial allegations of voting and vote tabulation irregularities. Bill Barr pursuing these allegations sparked an outcry. Sixteen assistant U.S. attorneys in the Trump administration urged the Attorney General to cease investigations because they had not seen evidence of any substantial anomalies. That means they did not find any evidence of real fraud. Attorney General Barr pursued the investigations anyways, and after his investigation, this is what he found. Quote, we have not seen fraud on a scale that could have affected a different outcome in the election. Two weeks later... Now, I think we have to remember they're not trying to dispute if this was correct or wrong, because you could argue what Barr did was a reviewed sort of a, at a meta level. But the overall point that Lou is trying to make here is that even Barr, who was pretty loyal to Trump, uh, had issue proceeding further, and it led to Trump beginning to to at least consider meddling a bit with the Justice Department to get someone in there that could support him. On December 14th, the electors voted to give Joe Biden 306 electoral votes and ensured his victory. The following day, Bill Barr resigned. Attorney General Barr had loyally served President Trump. He had never publicly come out against the president, but for Bill Barr making up election fraud claims and saying the election was stolen was a bridge too far. Bill Barr made clear that attempting to overturn election results crossed a line. According to a news report, Bill Barr, the highest law enforcement official in the land, told President Donald Trump to his face that his theories of election fraud were, quote, bullshit. I love getting those media reports in there. <clears throat> These stories we talk about in this show every week end up being used as evidence in this trial. If you've been watching and listening to Unfilter, and then you go watch or listen to these trials, it's a lot of the stuff we talked about. So Lou does a little more detailing of how Trump thought about meddling with the Justice Department. He came pretty close until there was a bit of a mini revolt. Refused to follow the facts and the law. So the president turned to someone he knew would do his bidding. He turned to Jeffrey Clark, another Justice Department lawyer, who had allegedly expressed support for using the Department of Justice to investigate the election results. Shortly after, Acting Attorney General Rosen followed his duty and the law to reopen, to refuse to reopen investigations. President Trump intended to replace Mr. Rosen with Mr. Clark, who could then try to stop Congress from certifying the Electoral College results. According to reports, White House Counsel Pat Cipollone advised President Trump not to fire Acting Attorney General Rosen, 
Department officials had also threatened to resign in mass if he had fired Rosen. A group resignation. I don't think we've seen one of those since uh, Junior. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, after these failed efforts, Lou tries to build the case that what happened is he turned on Trump and he presents a visual where he shows how Trump went through an entire stack of possibilities until he eventually went to his number two. But all his efforts prior to January 6th kept failing. And finally, in his desperation, he turned on his own vice president. He pressured Mike Pence to violate his constitutional oath and to refuse to certify the oath. President Trump had decided that Vice President Pence, who presided over the certification, could somehow stop it. As Pence would later confirm, the Vice President does not have that power in the Constitution. And President Trump never tried to explain why he thought the Vice President could block the certification of election results. He just began relentlessly attacking the Vice President. This comes up a lot. I'll spare you from all of the times where they all just felt so horrible for for poor Pence. But we'll, we will just take a moment with uh, Lou here to outline how they see that Trump pressured Pence. Here's what President Trump said in Georgia on January 4th. And I hope Mike Pence comes through for us, I have to tell you. I hope that our great vice president... Our great vice president comes through for us. He's a great guy. Of course, if he doesn't come through, I won't like him quite as much. Behind closed doors, President Trump applied significant pressure to his second-in-command. Multiple reports confirmed that President Trump used his personal attorneys and other officials to pressure the vice president. Trump reportedly told almost anyone who called him to also call the vice president. According to reports, when Mike Pence was in the Oval Office, President Trump would call people to try to get them to convince the Vice President to help him. And President Trump kept repeating the myth that Pence could stop the certification to his base to anger them, hoping to intimidate Mike Pence. On the morning of the rally on January 6th, President Trump tweeted, all Mike Pence has to do is send them back to the states and in all caps, he wrote, and we win. Do it, Mike. This is a time for extreme courage. President Trump later went out to attack Pence nearly a dozen times in his speech at the Save America March. Privately, in person, before Pence headed to oversee the joint session on January 6th, President Trump again threatened Pence. You can either go down in history as a patriot, Mr. Trump told him, according to two people briefed on the conversation, or you can go down in history as a pussy. Oh, oh man, hitting Pence really where it hurts there, I guess. I mean, I can kind of actually picture Trump doing that, you know, especially behind the scenes when he's grumpy and he wants Pence to save him. Now, Stacey Placid, she's the representative of the Virgin Islands, and she's also an impeachment manager. She gives us an example of how, depending on which way you view a past event, impacts how you are going to interpret facts today, facts or how you're going to internalize something emotionally. On September 29th, during a presidential debate, President Trump was asked specifically if he was willing to condemn white supremacy and militia groups, if he was willing 
to tell them to stand down and stop the violence. Let's watch. But are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland? Are you prepared to to specifically do it? I would say... Let's hear now the president's response. Do it, sir. Say it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them... What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. And right like me to condemn? White supremacists and right proud boys. boys. Stand back and stand by. When asked to condemn the Proud Boys and white supremacists, what did our president say? He said, stand back and stand by. His message was heard loud and clear. The group adopted that phrase, stand back and stand by, as their official slogan. They created merchandise with their new slogan, which they wore proudly across their backs at Trump's rallies, and they followed the president's orders. You'll see more about this later in the trial, but you'll see in these photos, to the left, Dominic Pizzola, and to the right, William Pepe two of the leaders of the group, heading to the Capitol on January 6th. In fact, several times they'll make connections to people who were in the, I guess you'd call it, parade of cars that harassed the Biden bus. They were at the rallies, or they were at the riot. Uh, They have these key members from different groups, like the Proud Boys, that they can show showed up at the riot. Um, Again, that was uh, Stacey Placid, I think is how you say her name, and she's the representative of the Virgin Islands. And she's also an impeachment manager. She actually had a, one of the longer one of the longer presentations, at least it seemed. But Representative Dean came in right after her to reinforce how some of Trump's supporters from key events showed up. And so this gives a little bit of details of what I talked about. This is just a small portion of it, though. She she really she really kind of has this whole. Um, it's like almost like a conspiracy theorist setup where she's got these pictures and guys with earpieces and she's talking about uh, you know how they how they how they track people down on message boards. It's qu- it's quite the presentation, but I wanted to play this bit for you. He's got guts. You know what? He's got guts. Unlike a lot of people in the Republican Party, he's got guts. He fights. Ms. Plaskett showed you example after example of Donald Trump when confronted with violence, praising it. We saw him instruct the Proud Boys, a violent extremist group, to stand back and stand by. That group was there on January the 6th. We saw him praise a caravan of his supporters after they tried to drive a bus belonging to the Biden campaign off the road. The organizer of that attack was there on January the 6th. And we saw him team up with the organizers of the violent second MAGA Million March to plan his rally on January the 6th. And what does he do at that rally? He tells Giuliani he's doing a great job addressing the crowd, saying he has guts to call for fighting. And to be clear, this is what he was praising. Let's have trial by combat. 
I, I agree with Mod Bear in the right now chat. This is a best of for Donald Trump of the last six months. They're playing the Trump hits at this. They're doing my bit, guys. They're doing my thing. So now I'm playing clips of them playing clips. Uh, Representative Dean, who we were just playing there, she tries to break down one of Trump's key defenses. This is an interesting one. I think it's key to their overall argument because Trump's lawyers and team have been pointing to him specifically saying, let's go down there and march peacefully and patriotically as proof that he wasn't calling for violence. But they, for the entire day, are trying to make the case, well, that's essentially 15 seconds of the last six months. One of President Trump's key defenses focus on what he said for a few seconds. Oh, and I'll I'll point to, there is going to be in the show notes the entire stream of all of this. So if you do want more, I don't know what's wrong with you, you're broken inside, Uh, there will be a link in the notes. Sorry. One of President Trump's key defenses focus on what he said for a few seconds, 15 minutes into the speech. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. In a speech spanning almost 11,000 words, yes, we did check, that was the one time the only time President Trump used the word peaceful or any suggestion of nonviolence. The implication of the president's tweets, the rally, and the speeches were clear. President Trump used the word fight or fighting 20 times, including telling the crowd they needed to fight like hell to save our democracy. We know how the crowd responded to Donald Trump's words, and he knew how they responded to his speech. Here is the evidence of how the crowd reacted. So this is the perspective of the crowd far away from the Trump stage. And in the far, far distance, you can see the glass and everything behind him. And you can hear the audio and you'll be able to hear to some degree how the crowd responds. The crowd responds, you'll be able to hear, storm the Capitol. If you listen closer, you're also going to hear, invade the Capitol. Invade the Capitol building. Take the Capitol. Storm the Capitol. Invade the Capitol. Fight. 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 Take the Capitol right now. These were the words of the crowd. Whoever wrote Trump's script should be fired. Um, that was, uh, you know, they're going to they're going to be able to they're going to be able to show you how his words impact the crowd. And that's one of the things they did there is that was from the perspective of the crowd. There was another one that was pretty powerful that I captured right before the show. If you're watching the live stream, you saw me capture it. Um, And I don't know how Trump's team is going to respond to this. Uh, You see, they they have people taking his words in his speech and shouting storm the Capitol. 
during during his speech at the rally, and then they also have people in the crowds during the in, in, during the I guess uh, riot. Um, trying to delineate how you delineate between the people at the rally versus the riot. But when I say the riot, I mean the stuff that happened down at the Capitol. You can see that they were reading tweets and then announcing Trump's tweets over loud microphones. Uh, And they can show that direct one-to-one involvement. And I think that's going to be pretty damning because even if it wasn't the intention of Trump, it clearly they have the video that shows it had the impact. This guy, too, uh, by the way, this is Representative Castro. Sorry, I meant I'm trying to introduce them a little bit better uh, for you this time. So this is right here, Representative Castro, uh, and uh, he is one of the— Even when President— Whoa, whoa, buddy, whoa. This is Representative Castro, and he is one of the impeachment managers. uh, And, of course, he has a presentation to give, and he's fired up. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Even when President Trump knew what his words were causing— He didn't do any of those things to stop the crowd. In fact, he did the opposite. He fueled the fire. At 2.24 p.m., he tweeted, quote, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution. USA demands the truth. Over an hour and a half into the attack, And this is what he tweeted. And he still, even at this point, did not acknowledge the attack on the Capitol, let alone condemn it. Instead, he further incites the mob against his own vice president, whose life was being threatened. Well, some of you may say, well, Who was paying attention anyway? Well, that mob was paying attention. Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution. They have a Trump tweet that was tweeted at 2.24 p.m. on January 6th up next to this video where the guy is just literally reading Trump's tweet word for word. get something done you're gonna have to do it yourself a little, a little bit chaotic but you can imagine the impact that might have on the people in the room and representative dean wraps it up by saying this happened on your watch all of this happened on your watch and now it's your duty to clean it up that's i think and they're still proceeding right now so i haven't seen some of the later stuff but i think they made a very 
a very successful um, first like argument, and I think they had a they had a real strategy here of building off of each other in a way that was really flowed. There was tons of pre production that was done for them. They had cues to start the to start the clips. They had binders with screenshots of what would be playing and, and indexes of when that would start. I mean, it was extremely well produced. And I don't know how Trump's team responds to that because they don't they don't seem to have this level of sophistication. They seem to be a little clunky. Uh, I will pl- I'll play some stuff in the overtime and let you decide. I have an idea of the types of clips they might play. Uh, I'll, I also have that in the overtime, and my intention is to be watching it and potentially potentially break in with another show tomorrow. So keep your eye out on the either at the Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash unfilter, or in the Discord, or, you know, eventually it ends up in the MP3 feed, doesn't it? You can just get it that way. So I don't see how this works out in a way that I'm going to feel satisfied because we're not going to really resolve the underlying societal issues that led to Donald Trump. And we're not really getting an answer on what protests. Well, I guess we will in a way. In a way, we'll be condemning one type of protesting while remaining completely silent about another type of protesting that in particular plagues my neck of the woods. And I don't feel like we'll have any resolution there. It doesn't seem like any of the actual causes are going to be addressed in a way. And in a way, what this does is it allows all of us again to move forward and not analyze what caused this calamity. You know, we really saw this happen with Russiagate. In, in, the, in the aftermath of the election, the Democrats needed a narrative that explained how they got their butts kicked by Orange Man. And it couldn't, it couldn't be, well, it's because Hillary is the very definition of the establishment that people are sick and tired of and the system that has betrayed them. It couldn't be because they worked to squeeze out Bernie, who was the populist candidate for their party. Couldn't be that. Couldn't be because they picked a bad candidate. They picked a bad horse. It had to be because of a nation state's interference. That was, it was such a get out of jail for free card. It didn't, it didn't require any introspection. Didn't have to raise the question if perhaps Nancy and Chuck were past their prime. Didn't have to really analyze what happened at the DNC and Bernie. We could just kind of move past all of that and freak out about Russia. And now what we're doing here with this is we're really focusing on Trump the man, the personality and his words, and the people that were duped into following him. That's what they're they're not even really a factor. They're just they're just mindless drones that were following Donald Trump's tweets. And there's gonna be no conversation or or any kind of discussion around these core problems, regardless of what the outcome is. And if Trump wins, he's pretty much good to go for twenty twenty four while they've still made their case on the record in front of the nation. The Democrats don't walk away empty-handed even if Trump wins here. And if the Democrats win, which again, this is a political process, not a legal process, so they just have to get the votes. So if the Democrats win and they're giving their Republican counterparts all of the excuses they need, you can talk about how this pulled on your heart, how you had a moral crisis, how you, after you saw the evidence presented, you had to do something, you had to put the nation before one man. You, you see, they're giving them an avenue here for the Republicans to come over. So not only are they executing extremely well, but the strategy is sound as well. They have a shot. They have a shot. 
And Trump's team doesn't seem to be so solidified. And I don't know. We'll see what happens tomorrow. But as I watch it on uh, what is essentially day two, but really day one as this thing got going, uh, I, I've never seen the Democrats this effective at anything. Even speaking. I mean, I've just never seen it. Like this, this is where their heart's at. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, you know, there, there, could be, there could be an outcome that we don't predict here, but uh, I guess we'll just stay tuned and find out, right? Patreon.com slash unfilter. If you'd like to support this here show, I sure would appreciate it. You know, this here is a, a passion project for me. I feel like it's important to discuss these things with you. And I want to capture this stuff from a people's perspective. The narrative that ends up getting committed to history is really just reflective of a very single, narrow viewpoint. The mission of this show is to give us another viewpoint. And I thought about this a lot recently. I thought about how do I target this exactly? I like to picture it like I'm sitting here having a conversation with you in the studio. It's just one of you in my head. There's just, it's just you and me. And you're sitting in a red chair across from me where I can see you through a crack of my monitor. And we're just having a back and forth. And sometimes I'll even kind of respond to you like you've said something because I, I'm picturing you there like we're having a conversation. And I thought about this a little more. And I thought, how could I kind of try to help refine what goes into the show? I need kind of a model to follow. And it plays into that people's history. What it is is simply, I imagine today it's a conversation between you and I. And in the future, say 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, it's a document for future me. When the details have faded and history's narrative has been repeated over and over and over again, these episodes will stand as a bit of a time capsule where we can re-immerse ourselves and re-recall what was, what was really the flavor of what was going on now. And that is the model I use to decide what goes into the show. And that's my goal. I'm not trying to drive advertising revenue. I don't have plans to launch some YouTube news network or anything like that. That is it right there. I want to provide us something that helps us understand what's happening today and something that maybe we can look back at as a bit of a time capsule to understand this is just some crazy times. And a, a lot of history is going to be written, but it won't necessarily be the people's history. But I could use your help. It is a lot of work, as you can probably imagine. There's a couple of ways you can do it monetarily at patreon.com slash unfilter. The other way that I mention usually during the outro, but I should mention now, is sharing the show with somebody you think might be interested in this conversation. It's not for everybody, that is for sure, especially what I'm about to get into. <laughs> but if you think you know somebody, it's the best way to spread a podcast. It's word of mouth. It's a big time commitment. So the only way they're really going to listen is if you tell them. So I could use that too. And then, of course, I always love to hear from you. Keeps me going at unfiltered.show slash contact and in our Discord. All right, let's get to COVID. Snitches get rewards. We want to thank you for turning folks in and making sure we are all safe. Now, this... First story was sort of the groundwork was laid recently when we discovered that the WHO was sending a team into Wuhan to get answers. Of course, then later we realized that it was really kind of a guided tour and they were being showcased different aspects. And then they were 
of course, being presented hand-selected scientists and representatives from the government. And now they're back and they have their findings. Preliminary findings by the World Health Organization have debunked the popular conspiracy theory that the coronavirus was created in a laboratory. The WHO statement came after a month-long probe in China on the origins of the disease. All the work that has been done on the virus and uh, trying to uh, identify its origin uh, continue to point towards a natural uh, reservoir of this virus and similar viruses in bad population. Now, they're very proud of their hard work. They think they've done a very good job, and they are congratulating themselves. It is interesting that this is coming up again right now. It's, it's almost like we're a year into this, and the question of the origin of the virus has come up almost anew again. And I have to say, I'm, I'm a bit pleased. I'm willing to entertain any theory, because it seems like it may be one of the most important questions of this century. Think about the history books that will be written just about COVID alone. Where it came from may be one of the most important questions about the virus. And uh, you have to imagine, you have to imagine, having a precise understanding of where it came from would likely give us some clues on how to deal with it and where it could be going. But it doesn't seem to be getting much traction. Meantime, the World Health Organization is dismissing the idea that the coronavirus leaked from a Chinese lab, setting off the chain of events that has now claimed more than two million lives worldwide. But not everyone is convinced by what's coming out of the WHO and that investigation. National Security Correspondent Jennifer Griffin joins us live from the Pentagon with details. Good evening, Jennifer. Good evening, Brett. The delegation, which did not include American scientists, said at a press briefing in Wuhan today, the coronavirus is extremely unlikely to have leaked from a Chinese lab and most likely jumped to humans from an animal outside the lab. Now, this is where I kind of take umbrage. Even if it's like super unlikely, like a 0.001% chance, again, one of the most important questions of the decade, easily, perhaps the century, not saying the only important question, but definitely one of them, I mean, of utmost importance. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo questioned whether the WHO had enough access from the Chinese government. Look forward to seeing the results. I continue to know that there was significant evidence, Bill, that this may well have come from that laboratory. So nothing has changed in your view that it came from the lab? Incredible that when the Secretary of State says, says this, the former Secretary of State said this, um, really got no traction. Not a thing. Five days before leaving the State Department, Pompeo quietly issued a fact sheet accusing China of deceit and disinformation, hinting the virus originated in the Wuhan Institute of Virology based on three pieces of partial evidence. Several lab researchers had COVID-like symptoms in the fall of 2019, research at the lab on bat coronavirus since 2016, and the removal of some of that research, along with new evidence of secret military activity at the Wuhan lab involving animal experiments. We haven't looked at the data specifically ourselves, uh, so we'd like to do that. Yeah, because why bother, right? Uh, we've expressed our concerns regarding the need for full transparency and access from China and the WHO to all information regarding the earliest days of the pandemic. Well, I think the jury's still out. Um, I think clearly uh, the Chinese, uh, at least heretofore, um, had not offered the requisite transparency uh, that we need. 
Senior U.S. defense officials tell me they have not seen intelligence to suggest the virus came from the Wuhan lab. China's ambassador to the U.S. added to the finger-pointing this weekend, suggesting the virus may have originated in the U.S., requesting access to American labs. How about that little switcheroo? So the Chinese, to kind of defer some heat are ramping up their conspiracy theory that they threw out a long time ago that this came from a U.S. military base. They're bringing it back up again and, and requesting access to our labs. Isn't that something? And I think that's, that's a clever move. But there, here's why I think it's worth asking the question, and it does seem like some people are starting to entertain this, is because it doesn't debunk that the virus is real. If it came from a bat, if it came uh, from a lab, if it, if it came from, you know, a, a lion, it doesn't, it doesn't debunk the virus. If anything, having that solid answer makes us able to more effectively fight the virus. And so I was really surprised when Bill Maher, who is very solidly on the left on his real-time HBO series, had on Burt Weinstein and Heather Hain, who have been proponents of the lab hypothesis, as it's put, and he actually let them say their piece. So I want to play a little bit of this for you. We've heard a lot recently about the fact that maybe the virus did start in the lab. Let's talk about that. The fact that there is this lab, I think it's the only one in the world quite like it, in Wuhan, where it started. It would almost be a conspiracy theory to think it didn't start in the lab. Also, members of that lab had coronavirus-like symptoms in the early fall of 2019, so they would have been probably like patient zero. You would think. <laughs> right. And, and, and that theory was demonized at first, that, oh, it can't, that, come on, that's conspiracy thinking, that it would start it in the lab. But it, it certainly is a 50-50, would you say that? Oh, uh, it's far more likely than that. As a matter of fact, right. I said, I think in June, that the chances that it came from the lab looked to me to be about 90%. Okay. Um, so this was never a conspiracy theory. In fact, that term is simply used to make it go away. It's a, a, an obvious hy hypothesis that is in need of testing, and we are only now, a year in, getting to the point where we can discuss it out loud without being stigmatized. Okay. A big part of the problem, of course, is that we are so politicized, we are so polarized. Yeah, I want to actually pause here for a second. Y y to help us understand this, just think about the mask situ situation. And how politicized that became. I think the core problem is it was Trump who wanted to blame it on China to defer blame. And the visceral reaction of anyone who opposed Trump was anything he says must be disregarded. It really came down to who said it. If, if it had never been brought up until today and the White House was saying it today, it would be a completely different story. And partisan now right. as a country that if the wrong guy proposed this to begin with, and for half the country it was the wrong guy, then the rest of the country says, no way, no how, we're going to call that a conspiracy theory, and, uh, and we're never going to revisit it. And the fact is that's not how science works. That is not science. You need to, you need to say, I've got a pattern. I'm going to make some observations, and I'm going to consider every possible explanation on the table. And did it leak from a lab? That was clearly from the beginning a possibility. Okay. And I think their point about it being just part of the scientific process is a good one. It's something that's worth eliminating because it's important enough to do so. But you see, the claims that seem even kind of more wild than that will get some airtime on the mainstream media, like CBS or something. It, as long as it detracts from the 
lab hypothesis. Like, it's weird. Like, you you can speculate about crazy origin theories. You just can't speculate about the lab hypothesis. Highly contagious strains of the coronavirus are spreading across this country. The CDC has recorded nearly 1,000 cases of the three variants, first reported in Britain, Brazil, and South Africa, across 35 states. And now we're getting new insights into how the virus mutates from a team of doctors who studied one extraordinary case. Extraordinary is the word here. Carter Evans is following the story. Carter, good morning. We've never heard anything like this. Gail, good morning. This is the story of a 45-year-old man in Boston who had a COVID-19 variant for five months before he died. Now, during that time, his doctors found the virus inside of him had mutated, get this, more than 20 times. Now, this is an extraordinary case, considering the life cycle of the virus in a healthy person is typically only around two weeks. Now, the reason why it lasted so long is because the man was immunocompromised, like an estimated 10 million other Americans. But in this case, the man's immune response wasn't strong enough to fully eradicate the virus. It was just strong enough that it forced the virus to adapt and essentially mutate. Now, the doctors who treated him published a report on this in November, but the story is now getting renewed attention with the emergence of variants like the one from South Africa and the one in the UK. We spoke with one of these doctors. His name is Jonathan Lee. He says this case is shedding light on how the virus adapts. I think this particular case is, in retrospect, a harbinger of uh, what was to come. And I think that it just goes to show that we need to do a better job of monitoring the spread of these variants and that only by looking for these variants will we be able to detect it. And that it's something that I think we haven't done as well up to now. I love that that's an Ubuntu machine they're on. That gives me a little warm and fuzzy. So we have these new variants that they're trying to get to the bottom of, but this guy, he was a uh, manufacturing plant for five months, they say. Now, it's not that I have a problem uh, and don't believe that. It seems it seems entirely possible. That seems like another great question. Could there be more people like that? I would put this in the same category as great things to know about COVID. I'd like to know all of it. And this bullshit WHO deluxe tour just doesn't convince, unfortunately. And it kind of goes back to what I've talked about recently is a lack of trust. And depending on who you are and what your opinion is, if I say, well, I don't believe what the WHO is saying – I'm a lunatic. And to others, it seems completely rational. I don't think this impeachment trial is going to merge these two realities. These, it goes far beyond just this one instance, and it bleeds into everything we do now. We can't even have a conversation about investigating different possible origin theories. It's remarkable. But we do kind of have, after three weeks straight, a firm position on the double mask, triple mask situation. I've played all the various different logics, and now the White House has a position that, frankly, it just seems obvious and it makes sense. But think about what they're truly telling you here about the effectiveness of these masks you see everybody wearing. The uh, CDC today announced that they find that they have a study that showed that two masks are are significantly better than one in slowing the spread of coronavirus. Will the White House champion the position that Americans should be wearing two masks, and is that a behavior that will be modeled perhaps by White House staff? So the news this week is that the CDC has a new study out. Uh, He kind of misquotes it. She's going to correct him here, so I'll let her do it. But that that is one of the changed components now, is that after the last couple of weeks, after having to play cleanup for Fauci, they have an official position. 
Well, I've learned a lot about this myself, the issue of studies versus recommendations or specific guidelines, I should say. So this was a study which was a reflection of the importance of well-fitting masks, um, something that many of our health and medical experts have talked about. It doesn't actually um, issue definitive guidance on one mask versus two masks. Obviously, if that's something they were to issue as official guidance, we listen to our health and medical experts. But the study does show that if a person has a loose-fitting mask, that they should consider options to improve that fit. And In other words, if you have a loose-fitting mask, like every single one of the cheap paper masks, or I was just out recently over the weekend, and uh, I, I was parked while my wife ran into a convenience store, stayed in the car and just watched people. And, you know, what I saw a lot of is the scarf, because it's winter, the scarf pulled up over the face. It's just like a scarf that's just like loosely around your face. Uh, in, in the in the sticks around here, bunch of dudes with big old beards and this little paper mask that barely covers their mouth and nose, even their damn chins sticking out. Some people walking around with their noses out. And what she's saying here is it all comes down to fit for effectiveness. Because if you think about it, you can just suck air in around the mask. It's, it's obvious. Just two masks. Obviously, if that's something they were to issue as official guidance, we listen to our health and medical experts. But the study does show that if a person has a loose-fitting mask, that they should consider options to improve that fit. And this includes nose wire, knotting the earlobes on your mask, uh, wearing a cloth mask over a medical procedure, disposable mask, something we do here quite a bit. So the bottom line of that study is actually to improve the fit of the mask, uh, and a second mask is one of several options to be able to do that. You know, and just for a little flavor of what it's like here in the Seattle area in early 2021, my, I feel like uh, I am labeled as some sort of crazy man if I'm out walking without a mask on. I keep the mask on me. I keep it in my pocket or in my hand. It's like ready, good to go pretty much all the time. I have one in the car. I have one in the RV. You know, I got him one. In, I got one in the studio just so that way I don't have to mess with it. You know, because like for the business and stuff, I'm, I have to run to the bank and just, you know, all that kind of stuff. But if I'm going outside for a walk, like there's a trail nearby the studio, and there's no one on the trail until like at one point somebody walks by and we can easily socially distance. I, I think it's weird to see how they stare at me as if I'm conf if, as if I'm causing harm almost. Uh, and I can see them like labeling me. Oh, he's a Trump supporter. He's a conspiracy theorist. He's an anti-masker. And I'm really just thinking to myself, there's really no science that demonstrates we need this. In fact, I'd say now if we, if we look at, all of the outdoor protests that have happened over the last year during the coronavirus, none of them have really particularly turned into a super spreader event. The George Floyd protests, all the Antifa protests, or even the stuff at the, at the Capitol, we're not really hearing about a lot of infections. What we hear about in infections-wise is people that went to Thanksgiving, people that went to Christmas, people that went to New Year's parties are causing spikes. But these outdoor events don't really seem to be causing Many super spreader spikes, do they? Perhaps there's something to that. Perhaps you're outside, the air is moving, there's UV light. Maybe there's something to that. And six feet of social distancing is actually perfectly adequate. And so why restrict airflow? Why wear something in my face that's just going to get it covered in dirt? The more I touch it, the less effective it is. To me, it's actually completely irrational to use the, the mask the way I do. But when people look at me, there's just so much disdain. It's a, it's a weird societal shaming that's happening there. And again, I go back to, I think they've turned us against each other with that one. 
And now here they are. Oh, yeah, by the way, <laughs> if you don't have a secure fit, uh, it's probably not working. So uh, heads up. Yeah. <sighs> wow. Wow. I bet you've been wondering how Hunter Biden is doing. You know, he had the whole laptop leak. Did he get fired from the places he was working with or has he still got a job? Turns out he probably still has a job. A reporter asks the White House if the president's son still has a stake in a Chinese firm. NTD's Juliet Song brings us the press secretary's response. President Biden's son may still be doing business in China. In a press briefing last Friday, a reporter asked the White House... Uh, just recently, there were reports that the president's son still owns a 10% stake in a Chinese investment firm formed with state-owned entities. Uh, do you have an update on the divestment uh, from that investment? Uh, he has been working to unwind his investment, but I would certainly uh, point you, he's a private citizen, I would point you to him or his uh, lawyers on the outside. Biden has repeatedly said that his family would stay away from foreign business to avoid conflicts of interest. He said last year that if he became president, no one in his family would, quote, have any business relationship with anyone that relates to a foreign corporation or a foreign country, period, period, end of story. Biden also said last December that neither his son nor his family would be involved in any business or enterprise that's in conflict or appears to be in conflict. Kind of reminds me of Obama, where Obama would say that they would never do a thing or a thing would never happen while just doing that thing. And that was like this weird cognitive dissonance that kept my head spinning through the entire Obama administration. Reports emerged in 2019 that Joe Biden's son, Hunter, was on the board of a Chinese investment firm. The firm is called BHR Partners, and one of its owners is a large state-owned bank in China. Hunter Biden said he would resign from the company by 2019, and Chinese business records show he left the position last April. But he continues to have a 10% stake there through his company, Scanny Atlas LLC. Scanny it Atlas. remains unclear if Hunter Biden is in the process of divesting his stake there. NTD reached out for comment but didn't get a response before airtime. Reporting by Juliet. Yeah, I was surprised there. Thanks, Juliet. Uh, yeah, that's funny funny how they just didn't get an answer but you know i maintain a couple of weeks out now that the whole wall street bets game stonk stuff actually kind of might have been a positive thing in a lot of ways and one of them is our high note this week i'm frank holland sundial farms up more than 40 percent today the cannabis cannabis producer a new darling of the wall street bets reddit cannabis stocks in general really taking off following a post on tilray and afria Note, there's some rocket emojis on these posts. That's shorthand for confidence <laughs> that these stocks will rally. One user calling the thread weed stock bets. Another saying, quote, weed stocks take me away with four rocket emojis. Some users saying they're taking their GameStop gains and then putting them into cannabis stocks, which have been outperforming this year on hopes of U.S. legalization. The Amplify and the MJ Cannabis ETFs both more than doubling in 2021. Hey, oh, get in on it, everybody. I love it. I should have thought of that. We should have thought of that. Come on. We got a Discord. We could have been coordinating until they shut us down. Speaking of that, as a backup, I do have a Matrix chat room set up. Ultimately, my plan is to investigate setting up a Telegram group for the show and a dedicated Matrix server, bridging those two things, kind of building out an independent self-hosted or at least popular with Telegram and seems to be seems to be getting more popular than ever. I think that could be a nice 
a nice in-between for people that want to be completely decentralized or people that just want to use something that's somewhat secure. I make no recommendations on Telegram, but I do use the hell out of it. You can also uh, find me on the Twitter. I'm at ChrisLAS. I still use that for a bit, too, although I got to admit, not tweeting very much these days. <laughs> it's just, I don't know, not really feeling it, but I will... I will try to reply to everybody who uh, tweets me, so you can uh, get to me that way. You can also send an email to the show, unfilter at protonmail.com, or go to unfilter.show slash contact. Now, if you'd like a little more show, if you're feeling like you're not ready for it to be over yet, head over to unfilter.tube, where the overtime will be posted. And the entire live stream, if you really just want to do the whole thing all over again and see the extras, is going to be posted over there as well. Kind of testing that out, building it up, and I'd love to get your feedback. So do let me know what you think. I saw, you know, a lot of comments. Well, a handful of comments, but more and more comments landing. People tell me what they think. I like to see it. I think you guys are digging it. So that's it on Filter.Tube. All right. Thanks so much for joining me on this week's episode of Your Unfilter Show. And I might even see you right back here tomorrow or next week. (laughs) 